Hey, this is Bob in the Don't Die Podcast, brought to you by Ohana Fest down in Dana Point, and brought to you by Live Nation, bringing you concerts all over the world. It all begins with getting off drugs, people. Let's go out and live life, get sober, get the right treatment for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. That's what we do around here. The Don't Die Podcast, the theme of it is to not die of drugs. Correct. Many people are not listening in this country to the Don't Die podcast. They're not on board with our mission statement, which is that you should not be messing with this mixed up drug stuff that's out there, fentanyl and Xanax and fentanyl, fentanyl ace Xanax. That's the Mac Miller cocktail, I believe. Yes, sir. So we started this podcast. I'm a drug counselor. He's a drug counselor. This is Chuck. I'm Bob. That's Mike. Hi. Mike's a drug addict. Mike We're Martin. drug counselors. And we started, it started about, I don't know, 10 years ago. I've been working in treatment since 1999, like a Prince song. And what happened was, you know, we always told addicts they're going to die when they're in treatment, but rarely did they ever. There was kind of a you know, kind of a scared straight tactic. In, in the year that I went to my first treatment in 1987, 3,600 addicts died in the United States of a drug overdose. That number is going to eclipse 200,000 here pretty soon. And we were telling people they're going to die back then, and it wasn't true. Then when we started telling them they're going to die from this new invasion of pharmaceutical prescription drugs and and illicit mixtures of fentanyl then they're like yeah you've been saying that for 30 years but eventually the kids caught on and they and they started to see their friends pass away i've had probably i've had to call parents to tell them their kid was dead probably 30 or 40 times and you have no idea of the reaction some moms howl like animals sometimes there's silence sometimes there's crying sometimes there's anger towards me that I should have done more but you can imagine getting that call so what I started doing about seven eight years nine nine years ago now was when kids would graduate from my program I would hug them and I would say don't die just as a reminder because you complete 90 days of treatment I don't know if you guys are familiar you complete 90 days of treatment, you think everything's going to be easy and it's all going to be good and you're just going to be having fun with your friends in the smoking section. Immediately when you leave the treatment center, reality sets in. And the Betty Ford Center has a statistic that if somebody discharges their program and goes to a 12-step meeting within 24 hours of discharge, they have a 50% increase in success rate. That's how, because you're doing good and we all go visit our loved ones in rehab and we think like, oh, they're doing good. There's, I've never seen her so, so well in so long. And it, it's all, we, we get optimism and hope yeah. and you shouldn't. Yeah, that's a huge parent misconception. The idea that my kid's in rehab, so it's over. We got them there. And um, lately I've been having a lot of first timers. I don't know, maybe you have too. Because a lot, of, a lot of the people that were abusing their insurance to go around, 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 in and, in and out of treatment, they're just plain cut off now. I don't know what they're going to do. So a lot of the people are more first time, second time. And talking to the parents, it, it is a fine line to prepare them for 
what is happening, what their child is engaging in. And I say child, but they could be 30, 40. In this day and age, no telling how long you live at home. I, know. I think your child <laughs> right? uh, My kid's 33. He's still my child. But the idea that... Um, the idea that it's over once they get there, there's so much to do, but it, it, it's, it's well worth it. So in that hugging kids, to remind them this is a deadly disease, it's dangerous out there, you actually increase your odds of, of ODing by being sober and returning back to use than if you just continued using because of the increased tolerance that you have to these drugs. So we started this podcast, and it, and it really was just a cry from both of us who working in treatment to parents and to the public, like, you need to know what's going on. This is crazy. I've never seen anything like it. I stopped working clinically in treatment because it was so depressing. <laughs> and so, so the idea was to get the message out. Now, fortunately, it looks like the overdose death rate in America is, has eclipsed and is starting to stay stable. But is 122,000 kids dying a, an acceptable number? I can tell you that if 122,000 Americans died from E. coli bacteria, from jack-in-the-box tacos, you'd hear about it every fucking hour for the rest <laughs> of your life until it stopped. But our kids are dying of drugs, and nobody, no media covers it at all because they do it to themselves, right? Isn't that the mantra of America? Yeah. Why is it that our children start experimenting with fentanyl at 13 years old? There's something wrong with our society is my idea, right? And there's something wrong, I love the congressman who I know won't get reelected next term because he's not divisive and he's not, he's not a typical politician. But, but I hope he does, but the fact is this country loves negative energy coming through those things that we all carry around. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in, in Los Angeles and Palm Springs and, and uh, we all had these science fiction ideas. They're gonna put chips in your brain. They're gonna put chips, they're gonna put numbers. And if you're a religious person, they're gonna mark you with the beast and all this. No, we mark our fucking selves. They know where we are. We know, they know what we buy. They know what we want. They know how many times we, per, you know. I almost said something. <laughs> Let's not go <laughs> they there. They know everything. They can see us. They're hearing Don't everything. If you're having intimacy and putting your phone next to your bed, they're hearing it. Oh, they're lucky. Huh? I'm telling you, these things are the devil. But I'm, I'm addicted to it. You saw me. You were sitting there. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? You never know. What are the Dodgers doing? What's going on? What's going on? You know what I mean? These things are the beast, the mark of the beast. These things are the chips in your brain. These things are. And Wait, what the congressman what said earlier about these things send us negative energy. And it's okay if you're an adult like the man in the blue. We can handle it. We know the difference, right? Our kids don't. Our kids don't. They just hear negative, 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 negative. Everything sucks. The world's going to burn. And then they turn to fentanyl to numb that fear, and then we get mad at them. We gotta start coming together, like they were talking about earlier. I love that panel earlier. Gotta start coming together. And it, it can't be some superficial coming together. 
some, I donated $20 to a GoFundMe get together. It has to be like this to sit and talk. So my seven-year-old daughter is sitting right there. She knows everything about drugs. Your kids, you should talk to your kids about drugs right now. There's no age that you're supposed to, uh, yeah. you know? And the longer you wait, the more chance something, somebody's going to influence them, you know? One of these things is going to influence them. The suicide rate in young girls in America because of these fucking things is ridiculous. Yeah. So we need to come together. That's the message of Don't Die is like, have some fun. We can... You know, if you work in treatment like we do, yeah, you've got to laugh at about everything. That's... Because it gets really dark sometimes, and it's really monotonous, and it's really... It's not... Everybody says, oh, Bob, you've helped so many people. Well, you know, I've helped a lot of people in 30 years. I've also seen 100,000 yeah. people not succeed. Yeah. I mean, so, it has gotten to the point where I, I re-examine that every two years. And I just re-examined it again. How much more can I watch? Yeah, it's beautiful. I love, I'll get a text every once in a while from somebody who's been clean for a while and things are going well. And it seems I get those when I absolutely need it, when I'm about done. But I mean, if, I stop, if we stop doing this, who wants to? I mean, it's, it, you gotta be kind of sick to want to do this kind of work. I, saw, I stopped doing clinical work running groups. I started running groups in 1999. I did it till about 2016, 17, or right, right before the thing. But um, what was hard for me is I'm a, I like to say I'm a Gen Xer, but I'm 62. So I'm like a baby boomer trying to fake I'm an, a Gen Xer. I'm that weird category. <laughs> and my, the way I see things doesn't work with millennials. Like, I don't, I like the term junkie. I, it was a term I kind of wore proudly. Keith Richards is a junkie. William Burroughs is a junkie. I'm a junkie. Now I'm in the club with Keith Richards and William Burroughs. The kids I'm dealing with don't even know who those people are. Nor do they care. <laughs> they don't care. So point of reference, I'll give you an example. And because this is Eddie's festival, and I'll give you when I started to realize. In 2010, I was running a group with a bunch of rich kids from Beverly Hills. And I used to do this reference because Eddie and I and everybody, a lot of the people here uh, were friends with this guy. And it was a friend of mine, killed himself. And he was one of the unique individuals in our society who was respected by every artist I knew and adored by the entire world. There are very few people like that. I would say the Beatles, Bob Marley, there are very few people that are respected by all their songwriting peers. All musicians go, that guy is badass. Because, let's face it, a lot of our friends are either really successful but not respected, <laughs> or, <laughs> or respected and not that successful. Paul Westerberg, for instance. Right? But there's very few that are both. And this guy was both. And he killed himself. And so I always used him as a as kind of a touchstone to talk to kids about money and fame and all these things that you want. Like I had this friend who had everything on earth and he couldn't figure out how to get off drugs and he killed himself to, as a point. And the people, you probably know who I'm talking about and the kids would catch on every time I would talk about it in a general way, who I was talking about. In 2010, I did that same thing, and no one in the room knew who I was talking about. And I said his name, Kurt, and no one in the room knew who I was talking about. Yeah. 
They knew Skrillex. They knew Mac Miller. Ooh. They knew Tiesto. They knew rappers. They knew, yeah. but they didn't know him. And that's when I knew, like, all my, all my, all my shenanigans don't really work anymore for dramatic impact, right? So, so I kind of, and you're wearing his shirt. There you go. And so, so the, the point was, we were trying to get this message out, don't die. Now, Mike is, and I have been in a band for 41 years. I don't think it's broken up. We just haven't played for like 17 years. Bands never break up until everybody dies, really. So, so Mike and I and Chuck started doing this podcast. And we're kind of, like Chuck's the most responsible of us, but not that much. (laughs) And he doesn't have say because he's younger and he's low man on the totem pole. So, So Mike is really the leader of the Don't Die podcast. And he's... Would you say you're lazy, Mike? No. <laughs> Anyways. I'm the hardest working man here. We started this podcast and it caught on with people who work in drug treatment. And then they started reaching out. They started reaching out to us wanting to set their own don't dies. And so there's don't die Milwaukee. There's don't die Reno. There's don't die all over the United States in Huntington, West Virginia. There's all these chapters of Don't Die, which is this kind of simple, loving, kind of sarcastic, funny phrase to say to, to addicts, right? And they're, they're starting to like have great success and they have fundraisers and they go out, they flew me to Wisconsin to speak to the governor of Wisconsin. And the three of us are just lops from Orange County, and we can't get anything going on. We can't even make shirts. We can't even get shirts no, made. No, we should have made shirts this year. <laughs> we should have had shirts for this. Is then it people late? would have Don't Die podcast shirts. Maybe but don't, here. don't Die is a simple thing, and, and, it, and it's a, it, just was, it came out of this pure trying to figure out something to say. So then over time, this podcast has devolved into talking about parenting and talking about music and talking about anything that comes our way um we are sponsored by ohana because smitty who might be here somewhere is probably the biggest don't die fan i think he texts me if a don't die podcast doesn't doesn't go up on thursday he's like where's the fucking podcast i need the podcast that that makes me sad I, I have never listened to a podcast. I've never listened to this podcast nor anything else. I did the Mark Marin podcast one time. I listened like 45 minutes of it. It was boring as shit. I just stopped. And that was me on it. And I'm a narcissist. <laughs> and I love listening to myself. I just don't find podcasts to be as, uh, I don't know, as, as popular. But I have a theory because podcasts, everyone, I work in entertainment now and Everybody has a podcast. Every comedian has a podcast. Every basketball player has a podcast. Everybody's got a podcast. I think you get one when you get a driver's license. You get a podcast. <laughs> Eventually. But it, why? And here's the thing. I'm a conversationalist. I love talking. And I love talking with people and hearing where they're from and what, what the real deal is with them. And I've noticed over the last few years, people don't even know how to talk. We're so isolated post-COVID. And these things, we don't even know how to talk. Like you say, how you doing? Uh, and somebody says, good. And then you say, so what's going on with you? And they go, nothing. And then you go, so how's what? your kid? Because your kid, you know, the kid was in drug treatment a couple months ago or last time I heard. Oh, uh, he's actually on the run right now. And he's got, a, you know, you have to pry it out of people to talk about anything important or relevant. Unless you say Trump and then everybody wants to talk. 
you know what I mean? But, but divisiveness, mean-spiritedness, unless you want to talk like that. So I believe the reason why podcasts are so popular is most of them are just people talking. And we're now voyeuristically, instead of engaged with conversations with our neighbors, with people at work, like I always talk to people at the dry cleaners or whatever, they don't want to talk. Nobody wants to talk anymore. It's a strange thing. You know, I'm a very engaging person. I really want to know what's going on. I, I'm 62 years old and I, I'm just curious about things. I, my I'm name's curious. Bob. I'm 62. I like to talk. I, I, like I to know, go to... but I mean, most 62 year olds are grumpy and old. I see people like they got walkers and they're, <laughs> they're grumpy no, and stuff. I think stuff. that's like 92 now. It's gotten, oh, no. now 62 used to be old. No, I go to Disneyland. No. Sydney knows. There's people my age. I see people walking by. I go, that person's like my age, you know? Uh, I don't know. So, so the idea is curiosity, right? Curiosity. What's going on with you? What's going on with your family? What means something to anybody anymore? When I was growing up, wealth was the most important thing. It seems like with millennials, experience is the most important thing. But experience what? Fame. experience something so that other people see you experiencing it it's a weird to have your whole life based in social media it's a weird thing did you experience it or did you just film yourself experiencing it right and post it and then you know and then how many likes and dislikes and whatever you know i i noticed that there's there's so many things i'm interested in one is you know, everybody likes things on Instagram, like, you know, it's your friend, oh, they, they were eating pizza, you like it, right, your thumbs up. On Yelp, nobody does likes, they all do ne negative things. Yelp is like well, the place you go breed. to get even yeah. with a restaurant yeah. where they were rude to you, right? We just got to get back to people and back to love and kindness. And hey, look, at all, look at all the people out here today doing real life. This is what it's about. This is real life. This is, this is people that want to experience real life in real time. And it's odd for us because we never do stuff in real time. I'm sitting at my house, you're sitting in yours, and we're just recording in the, in the middle no, of the I'm night. I'm watching everybody here. I, I know, and th this is cool because this is, this is what it's about. This is people coming together and seeing and going and doing and experiencing. I love it. So um, one thing I can say about the Foo Fighters, they are the nicest people you'll ever meet in rock and roll. I can tell you that nicest people i was on tour opening for them in the 90s and they had a thing called day rooms right so they're traveling at night and then they had day rooms they'd get there in the morning they and they would give it me and josh had a band the guy that played with eddie last night they would give us their hotel keys so that we could spend the night in their hotels as the opening band like no we didn't ask they're just so nice. Like the little acts of kindness like that, nobody thinks like that. They're thinking like, oh, those guys are making 50 bucks a night. Maybe we should give them the keys to our hotel rooms. It's so nice. And then Chris, I think, said, you know, don't charge any movies. Because <laughs> I think a movie had been charged at one point. What kind but of movie, Bob? I don't know. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was uh, been one of the younger members. It wasn't members you. I know group. what kind of movie it was then. <laughs> you just answered it. It wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me. Yes, it was. Um, and this is, this thing, being here at this beach, it makes no sense. I hope you guys know that. This is out of love that Eddie has for this beach. This is out of love for this site. And the bands that they get to play here are unbelievable, phenomenal. 
and it's all this kind of community yeah and it's here and then how do you spread it out like you know because how do what do we do monday that we learned here this weekend i hope i hope you just start being more aware of addicts and how to deal with an addict here's how to deal with an addict i i love addicts mm. and i i i don't expect to be told the truth by addicts nope. so so if you can lower your expectation of truth, you'll probably have a better experience with addicts. Because I used to say, I don't even know what the truth is. People ask me, uh, how, you know, did you steal that thing? And I, I wouldn't really know. I would think probably Maybe, yeah. if I was being accused of it. But I immediately had to say no. Because what am, what, when you accuse an addict of stealing something, do you think they're just going to go, yep, yep, I get it. I'm so sorry. Can I pay you back? You know, you got to just be a little smarter with your purse and smarter with your uh, <laughs> personal property around that. Boundaries. Boundaries. And safes. So let's talk about boundaries because it's hard for people. You're told if you if you have an addict in your life, you're told about tough love, right? Tough love. Those two words don't go together. Love is everything it's the energy of the universe it's it's the most pure perfect thing tough i don't know what tough is a foot like it sounds like football to me you don't put football <laughs> with love football so, love. you know what i mean football i like it <laughs> tough is not a word that should go with love the word is boundaries you can have boundaries with people and love them and be kind and be respectful mm -hmm. But you cannot move the, the boundary because the addict's going to push, oh, come on, mom, come on, come on, come on. You're like, nope. So, so, and it's hard because they'll come another way, I hate you, or whatever. They'll come any which way they can to get you to just to move that boundary. And that boundary is the thing that can help them realize the thing that they need to realize in order to turn their lives around. I've been here, I was here last night, and I was here every Johanna I think that's ever been. I see all the sober people because I've been sober forever, you know, 27 years. There's hundreds, and if not thousands of us here, right? Yeah. Every one of us was a boundary pusher. Every one of us lied. Every one of us took something we weren't entitled to take. Every one of us said things we regret. So when you have the addict in your life, remember that. Like, hey, you know. You, you know, can I say something on that? The important thing about um, a boundary, which there's plenty of information out there on setting uh, appropriate boundaries, is it, it puts... It, I think we're talking in the clinical abstract. Let's talk in the concrete. My son was, is an alcoholic. He's two years sober. He's 36. I have, you know, don't even ask. I have seven. I have two to 36. But... But my son was, I told him not to go do this thing. I knew it was all crazy and meth-inspired and stupid, you know, silly. He's going to be mad now that I talk about it. I think his mom is here, too. Um, anyways, he was doing something I disagreed with. Then it blew up in his face. Then he asked me to get him a motel. And, and I said, it? no. Oh. oh, my God, you should have heard what kind of father I was. Oh, my God. And then, and I and my friends grew up with no parents. Like my, like, you know, we were just on our own like wild animals at like 17. 
And so we had no parent to call to get a motel. So me and Anthony from the Chili Peppers were stuck in Bakersfield one time when we were hitchhiking around. And we didn't have a place to stay. We tried to go to this thing called One Step Beyond. was a nightclub in Bakersfield. I think like the Madness one, Or San Jose. And, uh, and we couldn't really get anybody that, you know, we we're kind of... Yeah, I'm not saying we were kind of scummy drug addicts, but we were kind of scummy drug addicts. Yeah. And we couldn't find anybody to buddy-buddy with, and nobody knew who we were back then. So we were kind of wandering around, and we stumbled upon a 24-hour laundromat. And it was safe, and it was warm, and it had a TV in it. It had been turned off, but I figured how to get behind the plastic thing and turn it on. <laughs> and we just stayed in the laundromat till it was light out, and it was, it was fine. So I tell my son when he's in Colorado wanting a motel. He said, find a laundromat. I said, you know, just look for a 24-hour laundromat. Yeah. And all I heard was, like, because <laughs> that's what me and Anthony used to do. So, so the idea of that's a real boundary. That's a human boundary. I've been in your position. I didn't have somebody that I expected to pay for a motel. Here's what I did. If you want to click me, that's fine. That's your right. You're a grown man. You're a grown adult. You can click me. But that is the way you have a boundary, right? And guess what? He survived the night in Colorado. And he's the greatest dad, greatest guy. Right. So have some hope, but don't think that whatever you do is going to make the effect that you want, right? And so... Don't believe in tough love. If I have any, any message on earth, there's no such thing as tough love. People have real visceral attitudes towards addicts. They really don't like it. I know this firsthand. When, they're, when, when people deal with addicts, there's a thing called transference where your feelings, you get angry. That's, that's your lack of, of boundary yourself. If somebody in your life is an addict and they're able to create anger in you, and I'm not perfect at it, I have it all the time. Anger in you, uh, cynicism comes out of your mouth, sarcasm, that's you. That's, that's where you begin and they end, right? And so it's, a, it's an ongoing thing, but we need to engage with them because casting them away like we have done in the city of Los Angeles doesn't do anything but have them peeing in our yard. Right? That's the truth. This, this, this idea that there's not enough homes, there's enough homes. <laughs> right? I agree that economically, Southern California is an unfair environment. I, it, I find it hard to live here, and I make a pretty good living. So <clears throat> if I was a young person, I wouldn't live here. This is common sense. I go live in New Mexico or somewhere cool or Austin or Athens, Georgia or somewhere. Go somewhere where it's affordable living. Because Los Angeles is not affordable living. I lived in New York at the time when the yuppies took over. It was impossible. Like rents went from like $900 to $1,900 for the same apartment. People were snatching them up. They didn't even have toilets that worked, right? So that, what happened in New York 25 years ago is happening here now. So get out. that's what i would say if i was a young person i would get Get out i would get a car and get all my stuff and get my pals and i would go somewhere because to pay you know nineteen hundred dollars for a single apartment in koreatown that's just awful and so you know 
it, that's another thing that happens in drug treatment. You get out, you get into sober living, you're trying to get a job, you get a, I had a kid who got a job at a juice bar, Chuck. 15, $16 an hour. He worked 30 hours a week. That wasn't enough to even support himself, live, eat, like get around. How's he gonna have an apartment? So that's another, another part of the attic he problem. He needs to right? get more money. Huh? He just needs to get more money. Right. I wonder if Josh is coming over here. <laughs> now, Jeff, because uh, it's, it's 4.11. Klinghoffer, are you out there? Mr. Uh, Klinghoffer. Uh, and one of the things that we're very supportive of is we're, like, I got sober in AA, he got sober in AA, but there's lots of different ways to get sober, and we're trying to spread that message. Like, you don't have to do it any particular way. Just contemplate your problem. Kind of, you have to kind of ask for help. It's part of the confessional of like, you know, lots of people have come up to me and say, how would you know if you're an alcoholic? And I say, maybe because you're asking Bob Forrest if you're an alcoholic, right? Because yeah, I'm kind of known. If, you, if, if you've got to question it, there might be a problem. <laughs> I don't think people that don't have problems ask that question. No. Is there? I don't know. We'd have to take a poll. Uh, so anyways, the alcoholic, drugs, all this kind of stuff, that's what we do. Um, and it's a passion, it's a way of life. It's a, it's a, you know, I don't know what my life would be like if it wasn't for trying to help addicts get sober. I don't think I, I, I have major depression. I think that that brings my life meaning. Like I'm not satisfied with an Audi A6, though I have one. Um, that doesn't float my boat. It doesn't, all the things that society tells you should make you happy don't make me happy. But just helping addicts makes me happy. Like, I, and, and, and here's an inter, interesting thing. And constantly as I'm doing it, as I'm driving to go talk to the addict, or I'm dealing with, dealing with the addict, trying to get him in treatment, I'm constantly irritated and wish I didn't go. But it's the best thing that I ever do for, uh, in my day. And I can see there's some sober people nodding. Helping people is, it's not where about, it's it's not about the at. outcome of helping people. It's about the idea of the other, right? Uh, Socrates, pretty smart guy, said, after we get our, our society's daily me needs met, um, you know, meaning everybody's secure, everybody has food, everybody has a place to go to the bathroom. That once Greece got all the, all the citizens' daily needs met, they would get down to the business of what's really important, which is why am I here? What is my relation to the other? Socrates was an idiot. I want to tell you that. <laughs> the guy was, he just must not have known Americans. He didn't know <laughs> Americans. Because we never get down to the business of what's really important in America. Why am I here? What is my relation to you? We never even think about it. We just buy something well, else and shots. buy something else. I mean, there's some people do. Oh, there's Klinghoffer. Get up here. I, I like that idea for a shirt. <laughs> you should say Socrates is an idiot. What? Don't die. Don't die. Socrates is an idiot. <laughs> That's it. Well, he lacked insight. <laughs> Get over there. There you go. This is my hey, old hey. compadre I've known since he was 15 years old. His name is Josh Klinghoffer. You might have seen him play last night. The amazing musician, keyboards, oh, guitar, drums, music, singing. 
He's like a son to me. Aww. And I love him more than more than most. <laughs> and, Likewise. And what I, what I really wanted you to come here for is my new mission is people can get sober lots of different ways. Correct? Yeah, I would think so. Would you share a little bit? <laughs> what? Would you share a little bit? No, because my, my story is pretty un, unexciting. <laughs> but you did it. Yeah. Not I just, the traditional way. I just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> But what? Can we flesh that out a little? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a bit. Of, I have a bit of an OCD sort of numbers thing, and I my the date that my realization that it was finally too much came on St. Patrick's Day or the day before St. Patrick's. So St. Patrick's Day was my first day of not having anything. And, yeah. Uh, I thought that was too good to pass up, and it's. It, so At the, toward the beginning, date. I would yeah. never break that date just simply because I thought that was too good of a date. Is it 315 or 316? 317. 317. Yeah. Mine's 316. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be 314. I, I want to be 3.145. I just got sober because they were going to put me in prison. But <laughs> teach their own. But what I find fascinating about you is you've stuck to it. It's important to you. It's always a priority to you. Right? You don't even think about it. We sit around and talk about this shit all day long. Yeah, but I think that helps people, you know, yeah. like, you know, no, I mean, it's, there's probably other psychological reasons that made it to where <laughs> I didn't make it a, a communal thing. Make a thing, but I like to put you on the spot, so. <laughs> well, then you win. <laughs> Can you come up here? Well, see, there's so many psychological components to addiction, right? I could see in Josh at 15, he just has this, everything is live or die, end of the world like, right? I, I love saying this thing. So, so he was playing in PJ Harvey's band, and, and you're playing the Knitting Factory and had that upstairs balcony, right? And Flea and I were up there, and you moved from drums to guitar, and you took a swig of water, and the way you take a water cap off. Are you sure it was water? That was the period where I had water bottles full of wine. Did you? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it was in the removal so of the anyways, cap that you were It was cool. how, you, how you twisted the thing up, and you guzzled it, and then you yeah. put it back up, and then you just hit your guitar and pedal. And Flea said... He I have my routine dialed at that point. <laughs> he even drinks water cool, right? <laughs> so, but to, to, to be that is hard, because I know you're conscious of it. I know it's a conscious thing. Well, when I say I just stopped, too, the, the thing about it was, for me... It had nothing really to do with the drinking or the whatever else I was doing. It was final realization that there was lots of other things that needed to be addressed. So right. once you realize that the drinking or the drug taking or whatever is, is just a symptom of all these other things and that need need attention and need addressing, you can you just you remove the biggest hindrance to making progress in those areas right so that's just so that's why for me it, i just stopped because yeah, i became convinced that this is that this is the problem it's not that that you know like uh, obviously there's a physiological addiction to this and that some more than others but when you really come to the the truth that you have to deal with these problems this just well this. let's talk about the layers of it so the drugs are the symptom the alcohol is a symptom the superficial thing is the OCD, but what causes the OCD? That's the deep, deep. Well, yeah, well, I would imagine a combination of genetics and all of your experiences from day one, but 
And, and I don't know if it's worth trying to figure out what the cause of everything is, because I don't think you'll be able to, but just the recognition of it and giving yourself a break for some of the behaviors that you do, that you might have done. The rituals. Yeah, and just like kind of realizing that you can't really control some of that stuff and you're not a terrible person. You found a way to work with it too. Yeah. You found a way to utilize it it in a positive way. Or accept it. How long were we in a band for? Five years, four years? Yeah. So I have obsessive compulsive disorder, personality disorder, and he has obsessive compulsive disorder. So can you imagine what it was like for us to try to make a record? <laughs> no. No. I still, or, or tour? Or tour? I still can't believe you wanted, you ever w- wanted to be around me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking Just because I was younger. I was so young. He was 17 <laughs> when we went on the road. And it's he and I on the road together. We got snowed in in Montana or where was it? Wyoming. Wyoming. In a Volvo station. The snow was hitting the bottom of the car. And so we got this motel, and then I, I went, took a shower, and I, we, could, we could only afford room for the two of us. He just started loading all the equipment out of the car and then set it up and started recording in the motel room in a snowed-in place. <laughs> Laramie, Wyoming. <laughs> and I had just stopped smoking for the first time. It was like, oh, no. and, and less than a week, or <laughs> you had not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you wouldn't yeah, let me drive either, so you were just... <laughs> That checks out. It was a yeah. one, it was I a, wouldn't have let me drive either. It was a wonderful thing. And, no, and if and it wasn't for him, I never would have played music again after I got sober. Thank you, I met him, and I was just like, I could, I could deal with this. Because dealing with Mike was a whole nother. That's Mike. Mike Martin. I had choices. I could either move forward with the kid, we called him. Or I could go back to where there was all this baggage and all this divisiveness and all this resentment in the old band. So or I'll make move forward brand again. new. Huh? Or make brand new divisiveness. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps going on. It's so on much more on. fun to build. Well, I was in a band called Thelonious Monster. There was five members. Two are dead of drugs already. Only two? Right. And one is dead of cancer. It's only two left. Right, and the the thing is, when you're in a band with all that kind of trauma, everybody wonders why do bands break up. It's because most musicians have trauma, and most musicians have these things that Josh is referring to, these deeper, traumatizing events. And you put five of them in a marriage they can't get out of. You can't divorce. You just have to deal with each other. I know bands. I didn't talk to our drummer for like a year and a half, and we were on tour the whole time. It just like <laughs> orbit in different directions. I, I always loved the Gallagher brothers. Oh, my God. Think of the two of them. You think they'll be here next year or the year after? I hope. <laughs> that would be nice. But, but you wonder why do bands break up. It's that. What, that. You're coming from all these different backgrounds. Some, some of my friends' bands, some of the biggest bands in the world, a guy got in it because he answered a recycling ad. You didn't know who you were meeting. You didn't know Axl Rose and Slash were going to be in that fucking band. Are you kidding me? Right? So how do you then get in a band with five or four other human beings that all have their trauma and their addiction issues and their personality disorders and their problems, and you're just going to... When you're 18 years old. (laughs) 
Well, you have at least you have the music in common. Otherwise, you just kill each other. Sometimes. That's the only thing. Yeah, is a common interest. Like, but but you know, I had a friend, uh, John. His name was. He was the singer of a band called Warrant. You ever remember that? John, my cherry pie, and um, and Janie Lane. John, isn't it? yeah, Janie Lane. And he um, he said some most profound thing because I was begging him not to go back out on the road, and. Um, he said, yeah, but I got to make money. And I was like, because he had done it several times and it had not gone well. And he said, you know what the problem of, of going on the road is? And he, I said, what? And he goes, the other 23 hours. <laughs> I love, I love the hour, but what the other 23 hours, that is the torture of touring. That's the torture of trauma. That's the torture of alcoholism. It's that, that time. Right, and I want to correct one thing. Musicians don't have the highest rate of addiction as an occupation. You want to know what does? This is going to scare you. Doctors and nurses. <laughs> that you know. I know so I, yeah, I, I, I try. Look at your face right now. <laughs> it doesn't. Is it when I, whenever I tell that at one of my lectures, it's always like, yeah, it doesn't matter if a guitar player is on drugs, but your surgeon. Your anesthesiologist? That might work out. Scary, right? Guess what's second? Airline pilots. Oh, no. I'm not lying to you. I'm a drug specialist. I'm telling you. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> it said so on my van. You know, you, know, you know the medical profession is the highest rate of addiction. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you on that, Bob. They Let's say goodnight, Bob. Right? So, so... What'd you say, Mike Martin? I think we're done. Let's say goodbye. Say goodbye. Wow. That's Josh Klinghoffer. That's Chuck. I'm Bob. The what Don't Die you Podcast. Start? You saw a podcast right before your very eyes. See you later. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. The wild and crazy Josh Klinghoffer. Hey, shout out to Project Red over here. Hey, can you turn this up one second? Shout out to Project Red over here and Casey. Casey, yeah. How you doing, brother? He's giving away Narcan over here, okay? If you have a drug addict in your life, you should have some of this shit on your refrigerator, in the bathroom, in the cabinet. It looks like this. He'll give you instructions on how to use it. Drug addicts are everywhere. You never know. Please get some.